Federal prosecutors say the man accused of attacking Nancy Pelosi's husband wanted to hold the House Speaker hostage. It's Tuesday, November 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the State Department condemns Russia's airstrikes on critical infrastructure in Ukraine. We've all seen a number of uh, strikes that appear to be nothing more than an effort to brutalize the people of Ukraine. Also this hour, we hear from a climate activist who threw a can of soup on a famous Van Gogh painting. And a Wellesley professor recalls her grandmother's decades of domestic work. Those jobs offered no unemployment benefits or pensions or social security. My grandmother worked well into her old age because she couldn't afford to retire. Forecast says cloudy today. Highs in the 60s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities in San Francisco have charged the suspect in the break-in of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home and the hammer attack on her husband, Paul. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports suspect David DePap faces both state and federal charges. The federal complaint also says police who responded found tape, gloves, rope, a second hammer and zip ties in the suspect's backpack at the crime scene at the Pelosi's home in San Francisco. DePap is charged with one count of assault on an immediate family member of a U.S. official with the intent to retaliate against the official on the account of the performance of official duties. He was also charged with one count of attempted kidnapping of a U.S. official. DePap was also charged with state criminal charges, including attempted murder, assault, burglary, as well as elder abuse and making threats to a public official. He's scheduled to be arraigned in San Francisco Superior Court on Tuesday. Eric Westervelt, NPR News. President Biden says gas prices in the U.S. are far too high. He's blaming oil corporations for, quote, war profiteering off oil market turbulence caused by Russia's war in Ukraine. Biden says the oil companies need to bring down gas costs for Americans, adding the companies saw third quarter profits in the billions of dollars. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic one profits like this has a responsibility to act beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. I think they have a responsibility to act in the interest of their consumers, their community, and their country. To invest in America by increasing production and refining capacity. Biden says he'll work with Congress to examine ways to tax the oil company's record-breaking profits. A member of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, who stormed the U.S. Capitol, has testified against the group's founder and four other people on trial. They face seditious conspiracy and other charges. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports Graydon Young says that at the time, he thought he was taking part in a historic event. Young is the second Oath Keeper who breached the Capitol on January 6th to testify at the trial against the group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, as well as four others. Young told the jury that he felt a sense of hopelessness after the 2020 election, so he joined the Oath Keepers and traveled to Washington, D.C. for January 6th. He says when he learned that the Capitol had been breached, he felt it was a turning point moment when the population made its presence felt, like the storming of the Bastille during the French Revolution. But now, Young says he feels ashamed and embarrassed about his role. He says the Oath Keepers didn't have an explicit plan to storm the building, but that he felt there was an implicit understanding. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Police in Chicago say as many as 14 people have been injured in a drive-by shooting. Three of the victims are children, including a three-year-old. Chicago police say that initial video recordings indicate there were two shooters who fired into a crowd. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The Supreme Court is now considering its decision on an affirmative action case involving Harvard. Dozens of Harvard students and alumni rallied at the court in Washington yesterday in support of allowing race to be used as a factor in admissions. Plaintiffs say Harvard's policy discriminated against Asian Americans. More now from WBUR's Max Larkin. Justices pressed Harvard's attorney on whether weighing students' race is fair or necessary to promote diversity on campus. Outside, supporters argued that as long as race shapes American lives, it should remain part of admissions decisions. Tang Diep graduated from Harvard in 2019 and traveled in from Los Angeles, knowing that affirmative action is in legal jeopardy. In some ways, it's really scary that we might have to live in a colorblind world because A few justices, a few people are saying, oh, this is not okay. You know, I think it's important to show dissent. The court's decision on this case and a related one facing the University of North Carolina are expected next summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Tax refunds will start going out to those eligible in Massachusetts today. The refunds were triggered by a decades-old state law tied to surplus revenues. About 3 million taxpayers are expected to get money back. The state says checks and direct deposits will be sent out on a rolling basis through mid-December. This afternoon at 5 is the deadline for Massachusetts voters to request a mail-in ballot for next week's election. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says the deadline to return the those ballots won't be quite as strict as it was a few months ago when ballots had to be in by the close of the polls. This is somewhat different than the primary so that as long as it's voted and postmarked by November 8th, there'll be an additional three days that the local election officials can receive it. Galvin says a safer option is to put your ballot in a drop box on or before Election Day. Starting today, vehicle inspection stickers in Massachusetts will be given out based on the month the last sticker expired instead of the month when a car was inspected. People who wait to get a new sticker won't get any free months of inspection. State officials say the change is to encourage people to get inspections done on time. They say that's important for for safety and to make sure that emission controls are up to date. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In sports, Bruins are on the road tonight to face the Pittsburgh Penguins. And our weather forecast, the showers this morning will give way to mostly cloudy skies this afternoon. Highs in the upper 60s today. Tonight should be partly cloudy. Lows near 50 degrees and sunshine tomorrow with highs in the mid-60s. 58 degrees right now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Authorities in Ukraine's capital of Kyiv say water service has been restored a day after Russia launched another barrage of missiles across the country. More than 80 percent of residents in the capital temporarily had no running water after yesterday's attacks. 
Ukraine says it shot down most of these missiles, but enough got through to cause damage. That is one of the developments in the war. Another is on the shores of the Black Sea. Twelve ships safely departed Ukrainian ports yesterday. They carried hundreds of thousands of tons of grain, even though Russia has pulled out of a U.N.-backed agreement for safe passage. NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez is in Odessa, where several of the ships departed. Franco, what can you tell us about these uh, latest attacks? Yeah, the Ukrainian military says Russia launched more than 50 cruise missiles across the country, but 45 were knocked down. But those that got through caused a lot of damage. You mentioned some of the water issues in Kyiv. The mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, also said some 350,000 apartments lost power because of the attack. And the Ukrainians say the Russians are not going after military targets, but civilian infrastructure, heat and water. All this as the winter is obviously drawing closer. Russia's President Vladimir Putin says the attacks are at least in part in response to the alleged drone strike on Russia's Black Sea fleet off the Crimean Peninsula. And he added, quote, it wasn't all we could have done. Wait, so tell us more about that, because Putin also suspended Russia's participation in the grain deal in response to that attack. Uh, Some of the ships did get out yesterday, as we mentioned. Right. Twelve ships were left Ukrainian ports yesterday, four from here in Odessa. They were carrying 350,000 tons of grain on their way to Istanbul for inspections before traveling further to Africa and Asia and Europe. There are more being loaded, but there are concerns about what will happen to them and their cargo. There was a huge international outcry from Western leaders calling out Russia's decision and charging them with contributing to rising food prices and global hunger. You know, the White House says Moscow is weaponizing food. President Biden called the actions purely outrageous. I will note, A, that Putin does seem to be leaving the door open a little bit. In a public appearance yesterday, he said, quote, we are not saying that we are stopping our participation in this operation. We are saying that we are pausing it. Okay, so it appears the ships that left yesterday are safe. But I mean, are Ukrainians worried about this ambiguity on the Russians part? Yeah, I mean, it is a risk. There is no question that people are looking at the fact that these ships got out safely as a positive thing. But what about the next ships that sail? I spoke about this with Elena Naroba. She's a Ukrainian analyst with the grain trading firm Maxi Grain. Everything looks okay so far, but there is a high risk that Russia can attack this vessel or, or attack Ukrainian ports facilities. So there is a lot of uncertainty. It's a really tense time um, around here. But she points out that Russians have attacked ports in the past. In fact, on Sunday, Russia hit a marine terminal at the Mikolaev port, which is just two hours, about two hours away from Odessa. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez in Odessa, Ukraine. Franco, thanks. Thanks, A. Moscow's decision to suspend its grain pact with Ukraine spiked global wheat prices, and many countries that rely on Ukraine's crops for food are panicking. Let's bring in Kerry Fowler. He is the U.S. Special Envoy for Global Food Security. As we just heard, the U.S. says Russia is weaponizing food. What's the first thing to look for to know how much damage this is doing? Well, yesterday uh, you could look at the price of of grain, of wheat on the uh, futures market. It went up about uh, 6%. So that's a instant indication of what the uh, international community thinks of this. But um, of course, the the grain that's coming out of of Ukraine is destined for 
ports all over the world. Um, most of it, however, is going to uh, low and low middle income countries. So this is a grain that is desperately needed to feed hungry people around the world. A quote from a UN aide, um, Martin Griffiths, and his quote was, each fraction of a percentage point pushes someone somewhere over the line to extreme poverty. Does that sound about right to you? Uh, it's exactly right. The the UN and World Food Program have estimated that this conflict in in Ukraine has has pushed um, many millions of people into the poverty uh, sector, and we're we're seeing uh, extreme issues in many parts of the world. In the Horn of Africa, for instance, they're in their fourth year of extreme drought, uh, probably headed into a fifth year really staring famine in the face. Um, and one of the ships, by the way, that left uh, a port in Ukraine yesterday was a ship carrying uh, 30,000 metric tons of wheat destined for Ethiopia. Just to give you some idea of what that, that amount really means, that would be the equivalent of, of about 100 million loaves of bread. Um, so that's just one ship with 30,000 metric tons. Uh, Ukraine still has about 20 million metric tons in storage that, that really, really needs to get out. And what regions of the world rely on Ukraine's grain more than maybe others? Historically, uh, Ukraine has exported mostly to the Middle East and to into Africa. Those are two regions that, uh, that are, have been severely affected by um, uh, climate change, by COVID, by conflict, and uh, need this grain, need prices to be reasonable again, and need the actual supplies of grain that are coming from Ukraine. So short of getting at what Ukraine has in storage, are there any other sources of wheat, corn, or maybe other grain products to help fill the void? I think it's important to realize that that most countries in the world are actually net food importers. 131 of 196 countries are net food importers. So the world is is highly dependent on trade in in foodstuffs and grain in particular. Uh, that means that that countries that are net food importers are dependent on countries such as Ukraine uh, for much of their food supplies. Um, Ukraine is is a breadbasket of the world. It's a top five exporter of wheat, corn, barley, sunflower. And if you if you look at the situation right now, with grain being bottled up in the ports as a result of this suspension of, of the of the deal brokered by the UN, um, you have a, a harvest going on in Ukraine. Mostly, they're they're harvesting corn at the moment. And obviously, if you can't sell your corn, uh, you can't sell your grain, can't get it out of the country, then that provides quite a disincentive for farmers to continue to, to do their, their really important work. So we, we uh, urge all parties to um, abide by this agreement, continue the agreement in good faith, and get the grain moving again to to hungry people around the world. Yeah, Turkey is uh, recommitting to the deal. They promise to keep the grain moving. How long can they realistically keep it moving? Um, I, I certainly don't know the answer to that question. Okay. The uh, shipments of, of grain really stopped when Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th of this year. The deal that the UN brokered was a deal that was necessary to get the grain moving again. Um, so that's uh, that's what we're really aiming for, and we hope that Russia will come back in and 
uh, into the agreement and and uh, help us get the grain out. And short of that, uh, it, we're talking catastrophe then. We're already in a desperate situation, okay. so uh, yes, this is uh, this is a question of food uh, security around the world, and that's why we need to uh, enforce this agreement. That's U.S. Special Envoy for Global Food Security, Kerry Fowler. Thank you very much. Thank you. President Biden goes to Florida today to campaign for Democrats in the midterms. This past weekend, though, he was at home in Delaware, and his wife, Jill Biden, was the one with the packed campaign schedule. Here's NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. It's late afternoon on Long Island, New York, and First Lady Jill Biden is at her fifth political event of the weekend. She starts her stump speech with something a lot of people can relate to. I'm a teacher as well as a mom and a nana. So I stay organized and I run my life by to-do lists. It's a thread that runs through Biden's remarks. Here she was on Saturday in New Hampshire. This is an enormous race, but it comes down to things as small as saying to that mom or student or grocery store clerk, put the word vote in big, bold letters at the top of your to-do list. The First Lady is one of the administration's most requested speakers this cycle, with a pitch that is light on policy and heavy on humanity. Today, I'd like to share a story from my life. Biden describes the difficulties faced by a friend who got pregnant when they were teenagers, before abortion was legal. Then Biden talks about how shocked she was by the Supreme Court's recent decision overturning Roe v. Wade. It was devastating to me. How could we go back to that? While President Biden's midterm campaigning has been constrained by poor approval ratings, Jill Biden doesn't have that baggage. She knows how to connect with people. She understands that, you know, the issues that they care about. Sochi Inahosa is a Democratic consultant and says the first lady isn't perceived as overtly political. And so I do think it is like helpful to have someone who in, in a time when people have political fatigue, to kind of go in there and make a different case. Former Jill Biden press secretary Michael LaRosa says it isn't only this first lady. Just read the headlines. You know, in 1990, you know, Washington Post, Barbara on the stump, Chicago Tribune 06, please send Laura. Um, NBC in, in 2014, you know, better half first lady campaigns where president has not. And history is repeating itself as this first lady also campaigns where the president has not. Tamara Keith, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, we talk with the climate activist who threw soup on a famous Van Gogh painting to advocate for renewable energy. It's 19 minutes past 7. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, offering state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities just outside Cambridge. Learn more at LabShares.com. The Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow. 
on the web at tchs.org. And Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Decades ago, the Supreme Court set a precedent for affirmative action. In the context of higher education, student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the narrowly tailored use of race in admissions. Now that precedent hangs in the balance. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, a chance of showers this morning, mostly cloudy this afternoon. Highs in the upper 60s today. A few clouds tonight with lows around 50 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the mid-60s, and that's our forecast for Thursday as well. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston. And this news note, Bob Dylan's new book is out today, and it includes a shout-out to Canton-based Duncan Brands. In the dedication to the book, The Philosophy of Modern Song, Dylan thanks, quote, all the crew at Dunkin' Donuts. The legendary musician didn't specify which Duncan he visits. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Scribner, publisher of The Song of the Cell by the Emperor of All Maladies author Siddhartha Mukherjee, an exploration of medicine and the new ability to manipulate cells, available in bookstores and online. And from Data Haiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Phoebe Plummer has shocked some people in recent days and says that's fine. This isn't a popularity contest. We are making change. The suffragettes were famously despised. Martin Luther King was voted the most hated man in America when he was alive. Plummer is with Just Stop Oil, a climate activist organization in the UK. Yesterday, the group sprayed orange paint in government and corporate buildings in London. In recent weeks, several groups in Europe have seized attention with protests against fossil fuel. And Plummer was involved in splashing a famous painting with soup the painting was protected with glass, which can be cleaned, but Plummer intended to send an indelible message. My brother wants to have a kid in the next year. I'm doing this so that one day I can look my niece or nephew in the eye and say that I fought for your future. Plummer is a 21-year-old university student who joined the movement earlier this year and came on the phone from their dorm in London. Just Stop Oil started going out into action in April, and all through April, we went to the heart of the fossil fuel industry. We climbed up on tankers to stop them moving. We formed blocks in front of um, oil depots so none of the tankers could come and leave. We had incredibly brave people dig tunnels under oil terminals, so the roads had to be closed off and staying in these tunnels for weeks sometimes. We went to petrol stations and smashed up petrol pumps and destroyed the machines that are destroying us. Wait a minute, digging a tunnel under the road, so the person is essentially saying, if you want to drive on this necessary road, you're going to have to kill me. 
yeah, it risks the driver's life and the tunneler's life. Now, at what point did the group get into this practice of targeting museums, paintings? Since October, we have been engaging in disruptive acts all around London, because right now, what is missing to make this change is political will. So our um, action in particular was a media grabbing action to get people talking, not just about what we did, but why we did it. And what did you do? Me and my amazing friend Anna threw soup on the Vincent van Gogh sunflower painting. In the National Gallery of Art there in London? Yes. What is worth more, art or life? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? There's the two of you, you're wearing Just Stop Oil t-shirts, you've gone beyond the rope that protects the painting, there's tomato soup all over the painting on the wall, and each of your left hands are on the wall. What's going on there? So we had our hands glued to the wall behind us. What did that feel like? Well, I've glued quite a few times, and people always ask me, doesn't it hurt? Isn't it uncomfortable? It really isn't. I mean, the police have this solvent that they use, which just debonds you from the wall. It's not painful at all. It still seems maybe like it'd be annoying until they get you off the wall that you're stuck on the wall. Yeah, admittedly, we didn't we didn't choose the most comfy positions. <laughs> Why tomato soup? One, to grab people's attention. It hasn't been done before, and it was something new. But almost more importantly, to draw attention to the cost of living crisis. In the UK, we are facing a horrendous cost of living crisis, and it is part of the cost of oil crisis. How did you choose Vincent van Gogh and that particular painting? What did he do to you? Because of its notoriety, and it's a beautiful work of art. And I think a lot of people, when they saw us, had feelings of shock or horror or outrage because they saw something beautiful and valuable and they thought it was being damaged or destroyed. But you know, where is that emotional response when it's our planet and our people that are being destroyed? I think that a majority of people at this point would understand the problem that you're laying out. But there is the question of a policy solution. Do you want to just stop oil, as the slogan says? Is that your policy answer? So our demand is that the government immediately halts all new fossil fuel licenses. In the UK, we have eight years worth of oil in reserves. So those eight years need to be used to make a just and fair transition to a renewable future. And that transition needs to include training for people who work in the fossil fuel industry currently. There's a lot of transferable skills so that they have job security in a renewable future. It needs to include the insulation of British homes and it needs to include subsidies public transport. So you understand the incredible complexity of this, um, where if you were to stop oil in a way that raised energy prices dramatically, it would harm the same people that you want to help. It would harm people who are poor, for example. Oh, yeah, but of course, and that's the last thing we want. Nobody should be left behind in a, a renewable future, but renewables are nine times cheaper. The largest solar farm in the UK was built in just six weeks, whereas these new oil licenses that the government are proposing, it takes 15 to 25 years for any oil to even come out of the ground from these. Do you feel you understand the way to build a political majority for this? Because that would also seem to be required, not just a momentary political majority, but a long-term political majority in favor of change. 
Yes, so um, this is why Just Stop Oil uses these tactics of civil resistance, because history has shown us that civil resistance works. I'm sat here today as a queer person, and the reason I'm able to vote, I'm able to go to university, hopefully someday marry the person I love, is because of people who have taken part in acts of civil resistance before me. Suppose you were talking to someone who agrees with you about the danger of climate change, but is not on the same page with you on the policy solution. I mean, it might be President Joe Biden. It could be a, a, a UK official, someone who says, I understand the long-term need to address this, but the immediate situation is that we're in this conflict with Russia involving Ukraine. There are high energy prices. And as a matter of fact, it's getting to the point where it endangers political majorities and could bring people to power who would do terrible, terrible things. We have to do this very carefully. How would you answer someone who says that? The fact is, we don't have any time to waste. Last year, the former chief scientific advisor for the UK, Sir David King, said that what we do in the next three to four years will determine the future of humanity. When are we going to start listening to the scientists? When are we going to wake up and realize that if we don't act now, we are going to see catastrophic outcomes? Phoebe Plummer, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. It was so lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for talking to me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Just ahead on Morning Edition, the man accused of attacking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband has now been charged with attempted murder and attempted kidnapping of a U.S. official. This November, WBUR's Last Scene returns for a third season, surprising new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Scene wherever you listen to podcasts. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, a performance-driven investment manager, navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at loomissales.com. And H&H, the Handel and Hyden Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhyden.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A court arraignment is scheduled today in Northern California for the man charged with attacking the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The charges against 42-year-old David DePap include attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. Police say DePap broke into the Pelosi's home in San Francisco early last Friday and assaulted Paul Pelosi with a hammer. District Attorney Brooke Jenkins says the attack was not random. What is clear based on the evidence that we have thus far is that this House and the Speaker herself were specifically targets of the defendant. Prosecutors say the suspect told police he wanted to break the kneecaps of Speaker Pelosi. She was not at the home at the time. Elections are underway in Israel, where former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is attempting a political comeback. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Jerusalem. I'm outside the polling place where Benjamin Netanyahu cast his vote this morning, and voters tell me they feel the stakes are really high. You have one group of voters that is really afraid Netanyahu will win um, and partner with far-right parties that are anti-Arab and anti-LGBTQ. Netanyahu is Israel's longest-serving prime minister and is currently on trial on corruption charges, which he denies. His Likud party is expected to do well in the voting. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Starting today, shoes, clothing, and other textiles cannot go into the trash in Massachusetts. As WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, it's part of the state's strategy to reduce the amount of waste in landfills and incinerators. People in Massachusetts throw away about a quarter million tons of textiles each year, including towels, sheets, and sneakers. But those items are now banned from the trash. John Fisher with the state's Department of Environmental Protection says your old socks and slippers can be put to good use. So we have this material, you know, upwards of 200,000 tons a year being disposed of in the trash. And, you know, an estimated 95 percent of that is recoverable and it has value. The state doesn't plan to enforce the textile ban on individuals, but it does inspect the trash and can find cities, towns and haulers that break the rules. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Also starting today, Boston-area residents can apply for federal heating assistance for the coming winter. The application period runs through April. Kathy Tobin is Energy Director for Action for Boston Community Development, an organization that distributes heating aid. She says documentation of certain things is needed to qualify. Proof of identification for the head of household. It would also mean proof of residence, rent, and or mortgage, and gross income for all members of the household, as well as primary heat bills. She says for a household of four, the maximum income for assistance is just under $82,000. The state's financial report is late. For the sixth year in a row, the state comptroller is legally required to file the statutory basis financial report on October 31st each year. The comptroller's office urges the governor to get the state's supplemental budget in by the end of September to give auditors time to prepare that report. Governor Baker got the budget in by August 31st, but it has been subject to redrafting. The time is 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. In sports, the Bruins will go for their sixth straight win tonight when they visit the Pittsburgh Penguins. And our weather forecast, the showers this morning will give way to clouds this afternoon, highs in the upper 60s today. A few clouds tonight with lows near 50, tomorrow sunny, highs in the mid-60s, and that's our forecast for Thursday and Friday as well. It is 58 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. David DePap will make his first appearance in court today. He's accused of breaking into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home in San Francisco on Friday and attacking her husband Paul with a hammer fracturing his skull. Paul Pelosi is recovering from his injuries. The suspect DePap has given a statement to investigators and he told police he wanted to break Nancy Pelosi's kneecaps. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins says the attack was politically motivated. 
What is clear based on the evidence that we have thus far is that this House and the Speaker herself were specifically targets of the defendant. The DA charged DePap with attempted murder, and he is also facing federal charges of attempted kidnapping of a U.S. official. Member station KQED's Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez is in San Francisco. He joins us now. DePap is facing charges from the city of San Francisco and the DOJ. Joe, what more do we know about what happened and what his intentions were? Yeah, new charging documents told us a lot more about what happened that night. Uh, Monday, we got confirmation from the Department of Justice that DePap's true intention was to kidnap Speaker Nancy Pelosi, torture her, and see her rolled in a wheelchair in front of Congress. Charging documents revealed he had zip ties he intended to use to restrain Paul Pelosi, along with rope, a roll of tape, an extra hammer, and a pair each of rubber and cloth gloves. Wow. All right. So where's DePap from? Uh, What's his digital history? DePap isn't from San Francisco. He lives in a nearby city called Richmond. He attended pro-nudism rallies in 2012 in San Francisco with noted local nudist activists. And while that may make him sound like a bit of a San Francisco hippie, uh, blogs he published online show he took a rightward turn in recent years, embracing QAnon conspiracy theories. Uh, That connects with what he told police after the attack. He said he was punishing Speaker Pelosi for what he called Democratic Party lies. All right, so what's next for DePap? Uh, what's he facing now and uh, that now that he's been charged? So today will be his first day in court. Uh, the public hasn't seen DePap in person since the attack. Uh, more evidence might materialize today. A journal was recovered among his belongings, and it may shed more light on his motivations. Uh, we also haven't seen the police horn body camera footage of the incident. Uh, according to charging documents, he swung his hammer and struck Paul Pelosi right in front of officers. Yesterday, D.A. Jenkins described what police saw. First, Pelosi and DePap struggled over a hammer, each with a hand on it. The defendant then pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi and violently struck him in the top of his head. The police then immediately apprehended the defendant. Jenkins uh, believes DePap is a danger to the public and asked the court to hold him without bail. You know, we've seen and heard political leaders from both parties uh, condemn the attack. But the reaction from the fringes, uh, Joe, it's kind of been out there. Yeah, conspiracy theories have run rampant in right-wing circles after the attack on Pelosi, mostly seizing on early news reports that were later found to be largely inaccurate. Uh, D.A. Jenkins laid out facts that run counter to these conspiracy theories. He forced his way into the home through a rear glass door by breaking that glass. That countered one conspiracy theory that Paul Pelosi let the assailant in. He didn't. That's uh, member station KQED's Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez in San Francisco. Joe, thanks. Thank you. People in South Texas are marking Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. It's a time to remember lost loved ones and build colorful altars and decorate them with photos. In San Antonio, this year's celebration includes a tribute to those who died in the Uvalde school shooting. Here's Texas Public Radio's Jack Morgan. At San Antonio's Muertos Fest, 80 altars were set up throughout the tree-shaded downtown site. They all had orange marigold flowers, painted skulls, and most included some kind of food the departed loved to eat. But one of the displays was extra touching. These flowers there, right? 20 makeshift classroom desks honoring those who died in last May's elementary school shooting in Uvalde. I don't want to rehash those wounds. That was something I wanted to be very respectful for this project. Jennifer Arce teaches art at Lanier High School. She and her students came up with the idea to honor the Uvalde victims. 
The altar comes in 20 large parts, one for every Uvalde student and one for the teachers who died. Each student has their own individual desk and then we have a teacher desk that's for the two teachers. Senior Lexi Mieto's desk honors fourth grader Jacqueline Casares. The picture of Jacqueline shows her in a formal white dress. She wanted to be a vet. And I know I really focused on that by putting like um, a paw print and then including the four dogs she had. To really look at those pictures and think that somebody went to an elementary school and did those things to those innocent children, it really, it really hurts. Kai Blackburn worked with Mieto. He says remembering them in this way is important. We've actually looked up information on every individual student to make sure that we got everything right, what they liked. We made sure we got every detail of the students so whenever their parents can look at that, they can feel like their child is with them. Teacher Arce says she's very aware that school shootings happen more often. That's something that always weighs heavy in the back of my mind because it could happen at my school one day and, and I would do the same thing that those teachers did. I would protect my students. At Morto's Fest, Santiago Jimenez Jr. sings on stage as people move through the displays. Many stop at the Lanier altar taking pictures. Some wipe away tears, remembering what happened in Uvalde when a gunman burst into the school, and for more than an hour, police stood by and did little. Leslie Camara was taking it all in with her son and responded in a way perhaps only a mother could. Every time I hear news like this, where are my babies? Are they okay? How would I move heaven and earth to get to them? And all of that was brought to life in that massacre. These parents who couldn't get to their kids and the police who made no effort to get to these babies and legislators fail over and over and over again to protect us and our babies. A woman in a salmon-colored dress with flowery headgear moved slowly through the desks, dabbing at tears. Cynthia Cantu drove four hours from Brownsville to attend Muertos Fest. I'm a teacher, a retired teacher, and this just touches my heart. It's, it's hard. She said seeing all the pictures of the children made her think of her own and their good fortune. As a mother of two children that have been able to see their lives in college and as a professional, my daughter in her career, it, it is very touching. God bless the children and their parents. Lanier art teacher Jennifer Arce said that the Uvalde parents of the slain children would be welcome to take home their child's desk if they want to. For NPR News, I'm Jack Morgan in San Antonio. This afternoon on All Things Considered, scientists are launching a study to learn if they've been right or wrong about the causes of Alzheimer's disease. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, a Wellesley professor recalls her grandmother's decades of domestic work. In our forecast, clouds this afternoon after the showers this morning. Temperatures in the upper 60s today. It'll be partly cloudy tonight with lows near 50 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine. Highs in the mid-60s, and that's the forecast for Thursday and Friday as well. It is 58 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In business news, pharmaceutical giant Johnson & Johnson says it plans to acquire Danvers-based Abiomed. The deal's valued at $16.5 billion. Johnson & Johnson says the buyout is part of an effort to expand its medical device business. The owners of several Duncan stores in Lowell and central Massachusetts will pay the state $145,000 to resolve child labor law violations. The violations by the Westford Group in Concord were discovered when an underage employee filed a complaint. The complaint said the Westford Group was requiring workers to work more than 10 hours a day. The state says it discovered more than 1,200 child labor law violations made by the company. The time is 7.45. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Boston University Academy, where high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual open house November 30th. Be curious, be kind, be you at BUA, online at buacademy.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. It was 2019 when the New York Times Magazine launched the 1619 Project. The project was named for the date of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in the American colonies. The series won the Pulitzer Prize and prompted an examination of slavery's role in shaping life in the U.S., Commentator and Wellesley College Associate Professor Kelly Carter Jackson was captivated by the project. As we mark the 10th anniversary of WBUR's Ideas and Opinions page, here's her essay about her family's experience. I have a picture of my grandmother, Ethel Phillips, posing with the great-granddaughter of her employer. The picture was taken in the early 1990s. The child is looking up at my grandmother as she smiles into the camera. They are both holding small American flags. My grandmother is wearing a light blue dress. Actually, it was her uniform. For 59 years, Ethel was a domestic worker. She spent 43 of those years working for several generations of one family in Dearborn, Michigan. Her servitude to that family has gripped me for years, partially because her story is so common among women of her generation. Ethel was born in 1919 in Louisiana. She was the fifth of 16 children and raised in Mississippi. She was quiet, shy, and smart, the valedictorian of her eighth grade class, though she never attended high school. When I asked her why, she always responded, the school was too far away. She didn't know at the time, but there were only a handful of public schools in the Jim Crow South that black children were allowed to attend to learn a classical education. Ethel worked in her family's farm until she was 21. Then she moved north, joining her older brothers and sisters in a town near Detroit. The car industry was booming in the mid-20th century, and Detroit held the promise of better employment, a better wage, and a better life. But for many Black women, domestic labor was the only job they could find once they arrived. In fact, as of 1960, one-third of all African-American women who worked were employed by a household. Domestic work was difficult labor and required significant time away from their own families. Plus, those jobs offered no unemployment benefits or workers' compensation or pensions or Social Security. 
my grandmother worked well into her old age because she couldn't afford to retire. Ask any member of the family my grandmother worked for and they will tell you they adored her. One told me, she didn't work for us. She was a member of the family. But that word, family, always troubled me because everything about Ethel's labor reflected racial and economic subordination. Everywhere she went, Ethel was known as Mrs. Phillips, but to her employers and their children, she was just Ethel. Even after her death, members of the family asked me, what was her last name? After her funeral, another member of the family wrote a letter to me. He told me how he kept a picture of my grandmother inside his laundry cabinet. He used it as inspiration. He wrote, every time I reached for the Tide detergent, I knew I could do it all too. The sheer imagery of his recollection suggests he couldn't separate Ethel's work or humanity from a commodity. For him, my grandmother was a proverbial Mrs. Clean who came to life and befriended him during childhood. When my grandmother finally stopped working, she was 79. Her story is not unique. In fact, it is representative of many marginalized Americans and undocumented workers today. It explains why cultivating generational wealth was and is so crucially important. My grandmother could not build financial stability from her wages. The family was kind, but kindness is not enough. To this day, there are no federal protections for domestic workers. The system that prevents retirement, promotes subordination, and offers no protection persists. Ethel's work was valuable. Some might even say essential. The work she did for six decades, the work millions of people do today, deserves safeguards, mobility, and dignity. Kelly Carter Jackson is Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College and a contributor to Cognoscenti, WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. You can read her essay and thousands of others at WBUR.org. Joining me in the studio right now is Radio Boston's Tiziana Deering, who will be talking with Kelly Carter Jackson on the show today. Good morning. Tell us more. Good morning, Deb. How are you this okay, morning? how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Yes, we are. So we're helping the celebration of 10 years of Cognoscenti. Last week, the Lazy Susans, who had a piece on, came in, played their music in the studio for us, told us more about their story. Kelly Carter Jackson is somebody we've turned to on Radio Boston for deep analysis a number of times. She's been with us for... Juneteenth. Um, she did an incredible conversation with David Gergen, advisor to five presidents for us, right after the attempted insurrection on January 6th. She's going to come in today and we're going to dive behind this idea of generational wealth, what it means today, how we think about it, how we think about it for black and brown families. You know, she's one of those neighbors that you always want at your kitchen table because you always want to hear what they have to say. Mm -hmm. So we're really looking forward to diving in with her more today, Deb. All right. Thanks so much, Tiziana. Have a great morning. Thanks, you too. And that's Radio Boston at 11 and 3 o'clock today here on WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station 
And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Remember Megan Trainor's style when she first topped the charts in 2014? Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. Well, with her new album, Taking It Back, she's taking back that old school sound that made her famous. All the comments I've seen recently are like, oh, yes, this is our Megan Trainor from 2014. We love her and miss her. So I'm just trying to take it back to that time, but like an elevated version. Let's talk about what's changed with you since your last album. You've become a mom. Yes, I'm a mama now and everything's much more important. <laughs> and <laughs> and everything's also scarier. And <laughs> But yeah. I, I feel like I've accomplished so much with just this baby, you know, that I'm like, I can make a baby. I could do anything. I could have a C-section and survive. I, I'm going to do anything, like easy. And then I lost, because that was so hard, I was like, next challenge. And I lost the healthy way, 60 pounds. Wow. And I was like, oh, nothing can stop me. I'm on fire. And then I wrote this album. The music is upbeat. It makes you want to dance. But trainers also unpacking things a lot of women and new moms deal with. From the scars left behind by her C-section to the weight gain that made her feel less than beautiful. In her song titled, Made You Look, she sings about the moment she learned to love her body again. I could have my Gucci on. I could wear my Louis Vuitton. But even with nothing on, but I made you look. My therapist said when I was working through all the scar work and the body love, she was like, I want you to stand in the mirror naked for five minutes every day. And the first day I was like shaking and staring at the clock like, am I done? And by the third day I was like, well, you know what? I got nice legs. So like I could slowly see myself liking myself more. So when I was in the shower one day, I was trying to write that in a song of like, I don't have to like dress in all this fancy clothes. I can wear a hoodie and my husband still thinks I'm hot and I could be naked and he thinks I'm hot. And I'm like, I still made you look like after all that. Yeah. I want to talk about the song Superwoman. Because I cry more than a little. And if I'm superwoman, I'm flying in the rain. And I wonder really about a superwoman who's perfect, right? And all of those pressures on women specifically to have work-life balance and do it all. Yeah, I felt weird. I was being interviewed a lot about like, you had a baby, everything's perfect, you're writing music, and you're so confident, you love your body, how do you do it all? And I was like, oh, you've misunderstood. (laughs) Like, I was like, I feel like a hypocrite. I was like, I'm I'm none of those things. Yeah. Like, I am, I'm a badass and I'm accomplishing a lot. But sometimes I just want to cry in a hole and, like, 
I want someone to take care of me. And so that's what Superwoman was about. And it was about the work balance with my mom guilt of like, I don't see my kid a lot when I'm at work all day. And how do I, I want four kids. And I'm like, what am I going to do if I'm working? I don't get to see all four of them, you know? So you know how you can spiral. But yeah, um, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't want people to think this is all, everything's perfect, you know? Yeah. While you're young. That song, to me, felt like almost like advice to a younger version of yourself. I know you've been hurting for weeks. You stay up late and cry yourself to sleep. And it's okay if you don't like what you see. You've only just begun. And you're good enough. And yes, While You're Young was a song for um, puberty. Was a song for me. <laughs> Because I've been looking at pictures of me, like, as a teenager. I'm like, oh, boy, you know? I'm like, this sweet girl, I want to hug her. So I wanted to write a song about it of, like, girl, I know it's been tough, but I promise you all your dreams are going to come true. So go ahead and make those mistakes. She would never believe that I, I would become a pop star. And she never thought she would marry Spy Kids, you know? like. <laughs> <laughs> but she did. Trainer's married to Spy Kids legend Daryl Sabara, and he had some expectations to live up to. One of Trainer's earliest hits, Dear Future Husband, made it clear what she was looking for. Take me on a date, I deserve a pay. And don't forget the flowers every anniversary. Because if you treat me right, I'll be the perfect wife. Find groceries, find, find what you need. So I just had to ask, was he the guy you described in the song? Oh, yeah, but he's way better than what I was describing. You know, he opens every door, and he um, gives me foot rubs almost every night. He loves me. He knows how hard I'm working. So he sweet. takes care of our kid while I'm at work all day. That's the biggest thing we have is, like, we take care of each other. That's different than any relationship I ever had. Yeah. And as my partner in this life, we're just trying to make, make each other level up. It's really awesome to have someone like him. Yeah, I love that. We help each other level up. Yeah. You're very active on TikTok. I, I wanted to ask about how it's changed the way people make music. TikTok can blow up a song from any year, from any artist, with label or no label. Like, there's no rules anymore. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, the universe is speaking. They want the doo-wop, and I'm going to bring it. But then every song on this album, I was like, oh, TikTok's going to love it. You know, like... Mama wanna mambo. Mama wanna mambo, mambo. Mama wanna mambo, mambo. Baby, why don't we go, we go somewhere we can mambo, mambo. I was like, oh my god, all the moms are gonna dance to this while like holding their babies or doing something crazy, you know. <laughs> Trainer calls this album "Taking It Back" her favorite. What makes it so different? What makes it your favorite? Each song has a purpose and has an important message. A lot of these songs can turn your day around if you're having a tough day. So I'll be your therapist, (laughs) pop on this album, and have a great old time. And and I want people to feel like I'm hugging them, you know? Hugging them while dancing to them. I'll be everyone's bestie. When the rhythm gets you high, gonna put you in the mood. Megan Trainer, her new album is called Taking It Back. Cause you can't even lie, kinda makes you wanna move. Thanks so much, Megan. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. You're amazing. Thank you for the best day ever. Thank you.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a Boston parent's family favorite. Toddler to grade 8. Inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at Welland.org. Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israelis are voting in national elections that are being held for the fifth time in four years, hoping to break political deadlock. It's Tuesday, November 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the Senate race in North Carolina, where the Republican candidate says GOP voters are energized. People are furious right now about three main things. Depending on how you divide it, it's inflation, it's crime, and it's education. Also, the rise in anti-Semitism in the U.S. and around the world. Plus, new rules on disposing food waste take effect for some Massachusetts businesses. Today, we visit a cow farm with technology that can help turn trash into energy. So we're gonna walk over here and start with the manure pit. Oh great! <laughs> yeah. Forecast says clouds today. Highs in the 60s. It's 801. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities in San Francisco have charged the suspect in connection with last Friday's attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. There are state charges of attempted murder and federal charges of kidnapping as well. The speaker was not at home during the attack, but California Democratic Congressman John Garamendi says he believes the suspect intended mortal harm to Nancy Pelosi. This is where we are in America at this time, where people think it's their responsibility to attack elected officials. The suspect will face a judge today to be arraigned. Chicago police say as many as 14 people were hurt in a drive-by shooting last night, including three children. The youngest is three years old. Police say video indicates there were at least two shooters who fired into a crowd. The gunman who killed 17 people at a Florida high school in Parkland in 2018 faces the start of a two-day hearing. He'll face survivors of people he shot and the family members of people he killed. They'll make statements. The gunman has been sentenced to life in prison by a Florida jury. Drug maker Pfizer says the company's experimental RSV vaccine is showing promise for protecting newborn babies. NPR's Rob Stein has the story. Pfizer says a study involving about 7,400 pregnant people found that the vaccine cut the chances that babies would get severely ill from RSV in their first three months of life by nearly 82 percent. The vaccine is designed to protect babies by generating antibodies in pregnant people that are then passed to their developing babies while they're still in the womb. Based on the results, Pfizer says it plans to submit a request by the end of the year asking the Food and Drug Administration to license the vaccine. RSV only causes cold-like symptoms in most people, but RSV can cause more severe disease in very young children and older people. RSV is hitting the U.S. unusually hard and early this year, straining many hospitals. 
Rob Stein, NPR News. Russian officials in occupied Crimea say their navy repelled a drone attack against a Russian ship in its Black Sea fleet yesterday. The alleged incident follows weekend attacks on Russia's Black Sea fleet. NPR's Charles Maines reports this prompted the Kremlin to suspend its participation in a U.N.-brokered grain deal. In a statement, Russia's defense ministry said the continued flow of ships through a U.N.-negotiated corridor for grain shipments was unacceptable, arguing Ukraine could use it to launch attacks on Russia. On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin reaffirmed Moscow was suspending but not exiting the U.N. grain deal. Putin called on the U.N. leadership to secure additional guarantees from Ukraine that it would not launch attacks on vessels transiting the route. The authorities in Kiev and their Western allies have accused Moscow of deliberately sabotaging the U.N. grain agreement to weaponize food exports. Charles Maine's NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to NPR News. South Korean officials have apologized for the scores of deaths in a crowd stampede last weekend. More than 150 people died. The South Korean police chief admitted today that police had received nearly a dozen calls warning that the scene was quickly turning dangerous. Officials are investigating to find the specific cause of the stampede. Employers in New York City are now required to list salary ranges for any posted job opening. For member station WNYC, Gwyn Hogan reports businesses that do not comply risk steep fines. Several states have passed similar legislation in recent years, from Colorado and California to Rhode Island. Now in New York City, any employer with four or more workers has to post salary minimums and maximums for open job postings. Companies who don't comply with the new law will get a warning and 30 days to fix the violation. After that, they could face fines of up to $250,000. Advocates say the new law gives workers more power to leverage higher salaries while they're on the job hunt. They're hoping it will help cut down on persistent pay inequality between white workers and workers of color and between men and women, who on average nationwide earn 84 cents to every dollar earned by men. For NPR News, I'm Gwen Hogan in New York. Game three of the World Series between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Houston Astros has been moved to tonight. Last night's game was postponed because of rain. Nobody won the Powerball lottery last night. The jackpot rolls over until Wednesday night, and it's now worth $1.2 billion. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Both of Massachusetts' major gubernatorial candidates this year have declined to release their latest tax returns. More from WBUR Steve Brown. WBUR asked both Mara Healy and Jeff Deal for copies of the tax filings. Both declined but said they might change their minds if their opponent does so first. Bridgewater State Professor Emeritus Michael Kryzanik says the decision might make voters wonder if they have something to hide. If you're not being transparent about something that I think most people would expect to occur, then you create some kind of suspicion. And uh, I don't think you want that. The candidates did file more basic financial disclosure forms with the state as required by law. The reports show each candidate earned over $100,000 last year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Today's the last day to request a mail-in ballot before next week's election. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says his office has distributed about one million mail-in ballots so far. A little under half of those have been returned. Galvin says that's a solid rate, but it doesn't portend much about overall turnout. 
that's the most difficult thing to project at this point because our experience with mail-in balloting has been somewhat limited primarily to presidential elections in the past. And so it's not as clear-cut as what percentage it will be. Galvin says midterm turnout in Massachusetts was strong in 2018, but weak in 2014. For more on this year's election, including the deadlines for mail-in voting, visit wbur.org slash voter guide. The state will start issuing refunds from its excess tax revenues today. About 3 million taxpayers are eligible. They'll receive about 14 percent of what they paid in state income tax last year. The state says the money will be sent out on a rolling basis through mid-December. People who use direct deposit for their taxes should see their refunds first. The city of Lawrence will use some money from a legal settlement around the 2018 gas explosions to help build affordable housing. The money will renovate a nearly two-century-old textile mill along the Merrimack River. Developers tell the Eagle Tribune the mill will be turned into 86 energy-efficient apartments. They're scheduled to open in 2024. The time is 8 minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area consultations, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. In sports, the Bruins will be in Pittsburgh tonight to skate with the Penguins. And our forecast, showers this morning, clouds this afternoon, highs in the upper 60s today. Tonight, partly cloudy, lows around 50 degrees, and sunshine tomorrow and Thursday with temperatures both days in the 60s. It's 58 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Subaru, featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness, with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C., where, in a few months, we can expect a Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action in university admissions. Justices heard a combined case yesterday against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. The lengthy arguments showed many justices with strong opinions and sharp questions. And our correspondent Nina Totenberg says if the court's supermajority does what it sounded like, they will end the ability of schools to consider race as one of many factors in admissions. Of course, we do not know what they will do, but let's talk about what we do know with Stella Flores. She's Associate Professor of Higher Education and Public Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome. Thank you. Did it also sound to you that most justices want to end affirmative action as we know it? That was the gist of the argument response, um, which we're not very surprised about. Um, what is disconcerting is this constant denial that race still is part of not only our higher ed system, but even how our K through 12 system is currently um, constructed, how it's racially segregated, and how all of that contributes to college enrollment and completion. Oh, now this is very interesting uh, because there was a lot of history in these arguments. I got to hear some of them. And the plaintiffs argued that maybe things that looked like affirmative action were okay in the 1860s when there was a remedial effort to make up for slavery, but that it's not justified now. You're saying there are facts on the ground that suggest it's justified now. Well, absolutely. Um, our schools, our K-12 public schools, have never been more segregated, racially segregated than they than they have um, in the past, uh, partially <laughs> due to the dismantling of integration decrees. 
Um, we also know we're a more diverse society and overall the numbers are increasing, but the way we're segregated by race and income, especially in our public schools, especially in our high schools, um, it's, it's still very present. America's original sin of slavery still carries weight today. Let's address some of the things that the justices and the plaintiffs brought up here. Uh, Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, observed that the court upheld affirmative action, I believe in 2003, but that ruling said this isn't supposed to last forever, maybe 25 years, and in fact, most of the 25 years uh, is up. The basic idea of not having it forever is the idea that people should not be judged by race, and affirmative action in some sense does judge people by race. Um, what is the answer to that argument? Well, I don't think you should make public policy based on a hope um, that is not based on data. All the research says that we are becoming a more racially segregated society. We've seen increasingly how race um, is becoming part of many or has been part of most of our institutions, housing, criminal justice. Um, you know, the data speak for themselves and it's nice to have a hope, but hope does not increase college completion. Hope does not equalize um, opportunities. Is it clear to you that there is not a university in this country that is selecting students purely based on race to fill quotas? Well, I, it's illegal to use quotas, so universities should not be doing that. Um, but I think every university in every state should have the freedom, the academic freedom to choose a student body that best meets its needs. So the formula in Montana is gonna look different than the formula in Florida. And what the use of race as one factor of consideration does, it allows universities to construct a student body that meets the needs of the state and ultimately the nation. Oh, meaning that we all, regardless of our race, have an interest in a diverse student body at universities generally. Absolutely. I mean, if, if we were a country that was 90% white, I think that would be very different, but we're a country that's increasingly diverse. And unfortunately, the debate gets framed as if there are special advantages for groups when really it's just an opportunity to be considered. No admissions officer is going to just choose someone because they're black. We need to make sure the students are um, qualified, they can succeed, and that they can represent based on their characteristics, their academic um, characteristics as well, uh, part of the leadership pipeline. So one point in admissions is really also a pathway to leadership in this country. Um, very quickly here, let's the, the justices briefly discussed alternatives. Uh, if they were to throw out affirmative action, what could universities do to make sure that all kinds of, of students, all kinds of applicants get a chance? Uh, your state, Texas, the University of Texas, has adopted over the years a system of admitting kids from the top 10% of every school, which means that kids have an opportunity regardless of where they grew up, even if the schools are segregated and everything else. And in a few seconds, are there other ways to effectively get the same result and help disadvantaged kids without considering race at all? The research is exceptionally clear. There's no other uh, alternative method that will racially diversify a student body other than the use of race as one factor of consideration. The University of Re Texas system doesn't work? 
The university system, uh, the 10% plan doesn't work to racially diversify a student body without also using the use of race as one factor of consideration. Stella Flores of the University of Texas at Austin. I feel we've just scratched the surface, but this has been very insightful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. The battleground state of North Carolina has not elected a Democrat to the U.S. Senate for more than a decade. The historic nomination of the state's former chief justice has boosted the party's hopes of turning the seat blue, but a popular House Republican with former President Trump's endorsement stands in the way. It marks one of the closest Senate races in the country. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. At a late 1800s farmhouse in the heartland of North Carolina, national Republicans are making an urgent pitch to voters gathered for an evening barbecue. We win by voting. Are you ready to take back your country? Are you ready to fire Chuck Schumer? That's the heads of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the American Conservative Union and CPAC, and Republican National Committee. Florida Senator Rick Scott joined Matt Schlapp and Ronna McDaniel on the state's first day of early voting for one reason, to get House Republican Ted Budd elected into the U.S. Senate. Playing football in Davie County, when I ran a couple of good blocks, nobody ever cheered that hard, y'all. That's Bud, who grew up not far from the barbecue here in Moxville, North Carolina, and he says Republican voters are energized. People are furious right now about three three main things. Depending on how you divide it, it's inflation, it's crime, and it's education. Voter Robin Bunting agrees. She's trying to cut costs because of rising grocery and gasoline prices. I feel like I'm very fortunate, but we still make choices, you know, and cut back. It's, it's bad, and uh, we need to change. Democrats are hoping for a different kind of change to take a seat held for more than a decade by the GOP and most recently by retiring Republican Senator Richard Burr and turn it blue. Democrat Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of North Carolina Supreme Court, who's now running for Senate, is angling for an upset. People really are excited about this race. They understand the sense of urgency around it. Some polls have given Democrats hope with Beasley within the margin of error. Plus, she's the first African-American woman nominated for the role, and it's energized a key demographic, black voters. Beasley is meeting voters at churches around the state and has been boosted by a, quote, souls to the polls effort to get churchgoers to the ballot box. Here's Beasley meeting with religious leaders in Charlotte. There's a lot of power in the church. I grew up in the church. My husband grew up in the church. Our sons grew up in the church. And y'all know it is not just our religious center. It is our social center and it is our political center. And Beasley has with her a powerful surrogate and House Majority Whip, Jim Clyburn. This election is the most consequential election of any of our lifetimes. The South Carolina Democrat argues Republicans are fighting to whitewash education by erasing black history from schools and curtail voting and reproductive rights. You've got to get real. You cannot sit idly by. But even after abortion energized Democratic voters this past summer, Beasley knows inflation is a top priority. People want to know that I'm going to get to the Senate, that I'm going to address rising costs. People are feeling everything from pain to the pump to the cost of prescription drugs and everything in between. Turnout will be critical in a midterm race that typically draws fewer voters than in presidential election years. Politics professor Michael Bitzer, Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina, says both sides are making political calculations. He notes Beasley has not appeared with President Biden, who's facing low approval ratings, 
while the Bud campaign often does not mention former President Trump during appearances, even though Trump endorsed Bud early on. That's a key dynamic that Republicans don't need in these last few weeks of the election is to have Donald Trump on the ballot. They want Joe Biden on the ballot. But Bitzer says even in a race that leans Republican, black voters could be key to a Beasley upset. They need that coalition to come out and perform almost at historic levels for a midterm in order to be competitive. Back at a GOP event, Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chair, says while North Carolina showed strong numbers for Republicans in 2020, this year will be a critical test with many of its statewide races. I think North Carolina is a purple state. But I do think we've seen some really good trends for the Republican Party. So this is a state that can be instrumental in a lot of different ways. The Senate race has made North Carolina a major player for each party's future ambitions as voters help dictate the next steps in their political agendas. Claudia Grisanis, NPR News, North Carolina. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, new rules on disposing food waste take effect for some Massachusetts businesses. Today, we visit a cow farm with technology that can help turn trash into energy. It's 21 minutes past 8. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by An Unlikely Story Bookstore and Cafe. Serena Burdick discusses her new work, The Stolen Book, with Whitney Scherer on November 10th and UnlikelyStory.com. Decades ago, the Supreme Court set a precedent for affirmative action. In the context of higher education, student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the narrowly tailored use of race in admissions. Now that precedent hangs in the balance. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our weather forecast, the showers this morning will give way to mostly cloudy skies. This afternoon, temperatures in the upper 60s today. Tonight, partly cloudy, lows around 50 degrees, and sunshine tomorrow with temperatures in the mid-60s. It is 58 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins, one family's pursuit of the American dream. From writer-director James Gray, everywhere Friday. And from Morgan Stanley with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR, and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation.
You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts throws away about 5.5 million tons of trash every year, and about 20% of that is food waste. Today, the state is launching new rules for food waste disposal. Any business that generates more than a half a ton of food waste per week cannot send it to landfills or incinerators. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports on one possible solution. It's called an anaerobic digester. The Fancy Pants Baking Company in Walpole makes one thing, cookies. Their factory floor is stacked with trays of snowflake cookies and gingerbread men. How many cookies do you think are in here right now? Uh, approximately half a million. Justin Hausman is one of the co-owners of Fancy Pants. He says when you're making that many cookies, there's bound to be some mistakes. So now we're looking at a line of uh, seven or eight people that are all day long piping decorations on cookies. And you can see how there's like certainly a potential for waste here, right? Sometimes it happens. A gingerbread man just comes out kind of weird. Some of these misfit cookies are donated or sold at a discount, but some just can't be saved. If you drop something on the floor, it's sure not getting sold to a person, right? No matter what, but it can go into a food waste bin and it can be turned into clean energy. Most of the time, food waste is a climate problem. It takes a lot of energy to grow, package, and process food. And when it ends up in a landfill, it gives off methane, a potent greenhouse gas. In fact, food waste generates the same amount of greenhouse gas as the annual emissions from 42 power plants burning coal, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. But the reject cookies from Fancy Pants face a more climate-friendly fate. They're shipped off to a facility called an anaerobic digester, like this one in Deerfield. It's at the Barway Dairy Farm, which doesn't smell as nice as the cookie factory, but the cows contribute an important part of the process. So we're going to walk over here and start with the manure pit. Oh, great! <laughs> Kaylin Baca is the operations manager with Vanguard Renewables, the company that runs the digester at this farm. So we're looking at a really big red tank with two large black gas bubbles on top of it. Manure from the farm's couple hundred cows gets mixed with food waste to a specific recipe inside the tank. Bacteria from the manure eat the food waste and belch out methane, or biogas. You're taking two products that nobody wants. You're heating them up, you're mixing them up, the little microbes do their thing and eat, they make the gas, and it runs this 1800 horsepower engine, and the generator puts the power on the grid. Steve Melnick is a third-generation dairy farmer who runs Barway with his son. He's a fan of the digester. It solves his manure problem, and there are other benefits. He can use the leftover liquid to fertilize his fields, and he uses the crumbly, but not smelly, leftover solids for cow bedding. Melnick also gets discounted electricity and a small stipend. Altogether, he says, it saves his farm about $150,000 a year. And that is a huge savings for really doing nothing. Huh. And it, it's going to keep us so we can keep farming for another generation or two. Anaerobic digesters didn't always get such high marks from farmers. They're hard to run well, and failures were common. What happened most of the time is that the 
digester providers um, sold a bill of goods to their farm partners, went and built a digester on the farm and then left. That doesn't work. John Hanselman is the chief strategy officer for Wellesley-based Vanguard Renewables. Vanguard operates five of the nine commercial digesters in Massachusetts, as well as five others outside the state. That makes them one of the largest operators of anaerobic digesters in the country. So we have a full dispatch and logistics center in Wellesley. We have real-time monitoring. We have 400 monitors on every one of our systems. We look at the chemistry, the temperature. Bringing all of that in-house was kind of the key to our success. Vanguard is expanding rapidly, planning to build 140 more digesters across the country. It's an astonishing statistic for a technology that's been around for decades, but never really caught fire in the U.S. But the financial equation has changed in recent years, at least in some places. Food waste bans, like the one in Massachusetts, have spurred the growth of digesters and composting. And it can now cost about the same or less to recycle food waste rather than trash it. Gretchen Carey is president of the nonprofit Mass Recycle. If you're in a state like ours where there were a lot of landfills, a lot of them have filled up and closed, and you don't have a place to put trash, then diverting 30% of your waste into a local renewable energy source, basically, is a great idea. Digesters aren't perfect. You still have to truck heavy food waste around, and burning methane puts carbon dioxide in the air. But since there will always be some food waste, like cookies that fall on the floor, finding ways to keep it out of landfills can be a powerful climate solution. One might even call it low-hanging fruit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, Israelis are voting in national elections that are being held for the fifth time in four years, hoping to break the political deadlock in the country. Coming to WBUR City Space later this month, a conversation with journalists Margaret Sullivan and Eileen McNamara. They'll talk about their careers, including how they handle sexism in the newsroom and what they see as the future of the media. They'll talk with Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering Tuesday, November 15th. You can get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Newton Country Day a Sacred Heart School preparing girls grades 5 to 12 to be strong leaders in a global society. Open house November 6th, newtoncountryday.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Federal Reserve is expected to announce another hike in interest rates this week, the Fed begins its latest policy meeting today. Analysts believe the Fed will raise rates by three-quarters of a point for the fourth consecutive time, with inflation in the U.S. economy still far above what the Fed wants to see. Later today in California, a court arraignment is expected for the man charged with attacking the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The charges against 42-year-old David DePap include attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon. 
Police say DePat broke into the Pelosi's San Francisco home early last Friday and assaulted Paul Pelosi with a hammer. Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez with member station KQED in San Francisco says prosecutors offered new details at yesterday's news conference. Charging documents told us a lot more about what happened that night. We got confirmation from the Department of Justice that DePap's true intention was to kidnap Speaker Pelosi, torture her, and see her rolled in a wheelchair in front of Congress. Charging documents revealed he had zip ties he intended to use to restrain Paul Pelosi, along with rope, a roll of tape, an extra hammer, and a pair each of rubber and cloth gloves. Police in Chicago say three children were among more than a dozen people injured in a Halloween night drive-by shooting. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Baker is asking federal agencies for help with migrants coming to Massachusetts. He's asking the agencies to expedite federal work authorization for migrants. Baker tells Politico he also wants more funding for housing and legal assistance. His request comes on the heels of dozens of migrants being sent to Kingston, Methuen, and Plymouth last week with little notice. Winter electric rates in Massachusetts go into effect starting today. National Grid says more than a million customers in the state will have to pay more this winter because of the higher cost of natural gas. It cites global conflict and inflation as some of the reasons for the spike. Customers could see the cost of their electric bills go up by more than 60 percent this winter. State officials are urging residents to conserve. The price of gasoline is also on the rise. AAA says regular grade is up 26 cents in the last week to $3.78 a gallon on average. The price of diesel is rising even faster. It's up nearly a dollar in the last month to $5.76 a gallon. Mike Shieldrop with AAA Northeast says that could have a big impact on the economy. When we talk about inflation and the high costs that we've been seeing and the skyrocketing prices at the grocery store, the high diesel prices that shippers and and producers are paying uh, have a lot to do with that. Shield Drop adds there's a shortage of diesel right now with only a 25-day supply on hand nationally. The time is 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts University, hosting its annual in-person art sale November 4th through the 6th. More at smfa.tufts.edu. In sports, Bruins will visit the Pittsburgh Penguins tonight. The Bees have won five in a row and eight of their first nine games of the season. In our weather forecast, cloudy today. Temperatures in the upper 60s. A few clouds lingering tonight. Lows around 50 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, though, with temperatures in the mid-60s. And that's our forecast pretty much through the weekend, getting even warmer Saturday and Sunday. It is 58 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. This past weekend, there was a stunning political defeat for the far right in Brazil's election. Now today, halfway around the world, Israel is holding its own consequential election. Voting has begun, and right-wing candidate Benjamin Netanyahu is trying to stage a comeback. He was, you may recall, forced out of power just last year, but he is a front-runner in this race in large part by aligning himself with politicians even farther right. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Jerusalem. Daniel, what are you hearing so far from voters? Well, I'm outside the polling place where Benjamin Netanyahu cast his vote this morning, and voters tell me they feel the stakes are really high. You have one group of voters that is really afraid Netanyahu will win um, and partner with far-right parties that are anti-Arab and anti-LGBTQ. Uh, listen to one gay voter we met, Liron Gour. The right side don't like gay people, don't like Arabs, so I, I believe if they will be the power, my life will be very bad. Now, we've also met right-wing voters who are undecided as they're walking into the polling station. They'd usually vote for Netanyahu's right-wing allies, but this time they're hesitant. They tell us they find Netanyahu's allies now too far to the right. But we've also met a pro-Netanyahu voter here who sounds very much like Trump supporters in the U.S., believing that Netanyahu's corruption trial is a left-wing attempt to keep him out of power. This is voter Ron Hoffman. The same stuff they did to Trump with the stolen election, it's exactly like here. They try to steal. Here, the media control the whole thing. The, the media, for 15 years, pumped that the BB steal, BB corrupted. Now you have a trial, and everything is going down the tube. And elections in Israel are really complicated. There are about a dozen main parties running. And so the game is, can Netanyahu cobble together a coalition with enough lawmakers to have a majority in parliament? This is Israel's fifth election in three and a half years. Daniel, why does this keep happening? You know, there's a political crisis in Israel. About half of the political map supports Netanyahu as leader. The other half opposes him. And election after election, this question has not been resolved. But do not be fooled. This is not like every other election that's come before it in the last three and a half years. Not more of the same. This is a dramatic election in terms of Israeli democracy. What makes it so? Well, what are the stakes for this? Israel broadly is torn between those wanting liberal democracy without religious Jewish monopoly over parts of public life. They want more joint partnership between Arab and Jewish citizens. And then on the other side, you have lawmakers and voters who want a more nationalistic, religious Jewish conservative country that uh, they want more control over Arab citizens. They want to weaken the justice system, which could help Netanyahu avoid conviction in his ongoing corruption trial. Uh, the stakes are very high, and a lot of it is going to depend on voter turnout. If enough Palestinian Arab citizens come out to vote, that could tip the scales away from Netanyahu winning. We could also see a stalemate. And in that case, centrist Prime Minister Yair Lapid would stay in power, and we could see a repeat election. That might be the best that the anti-Netanyahu bloc could hope for in this election. And Daniel, this looks like it's going to be a close one, right? It's going to be a really close race. It's going to depend on that voter turnout. And we may not even know the results of this election in days or it might even take weeks before there's enough political maneuvering, uh, negotiations between parties to make it clear who is going to be Israel's next prime minister. All right. Uh, when they do figure it out, uh, Daniel, we'll check back in with you. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Daniel, thanks. You're welcome. 
During a two-day hearing that starts this morning, a Florida judge hands down a life sentence to the gunman who killed 17 people at a Parkland high school. The jury rejected the death penalty for Nicholas Cruz. That decision triggered outrage among families of the victims, and Florida is now likely to change the way it sentences defendants to death. NPR's Greg Allen reports. Over the three months of the trial, defense attorneys and prosecutors agreed on one thing. The murders Nicholas Cruz committed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018 were horrific. Cruz, a former student at the school, pleaded guilty to killing 14 students and three adults with an AR-15-style rifle and wounding 17 others. The defense argued that because of his mother's alcohol and drug abuse when she was pregnant with him, Cruz is mentally impaired and never received proper diagnosis or treatment. That argument convinced at least one juror Cruz should receive a sentence of life in prison without parole. Fred Guttenberg, whose 14-year-old daughter Jamie was one of those killed, said Cruz should have received the death penalty. I don't know how this jury came to the conclusions that they did today, but 17 families did not receive justice. It's a view shared by families of the other victims and others who followed the trial, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's running for re-election and spoke at a recent gubernatorial debate. I think he deserved the ultimate punishment. When you murder in cold blood 17 innocent people, there's no other punishment that meets the gravity of that crime. And to have one juror hold out on that was a travesty. So yes, I'm going to ask the Florida legislature to amend that statute. Until 2016, Florida only required a vote by a majority of jurors, as few as seven, to recommend a sentence of death. After the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Florida's capital sentencing system, lawmakers began requiring the approval of 10 jurors for a death sentence. The Florida Supreme Court later said the jury decision for death must be unanimous, and the legislature complied. Three years later, though, a new conservative Florida Supreme Court, with members appointed by DeSantis, reversed that earlier decision and said a unanimous verdict was no longer required. But since then, the legislature hasn't taken any action. Stephen Harper, a longtime public defender in capital cases and professor emeritus at Florida International University, expects that because of the Cruz trial, the state will now return to that earlier standard. If you didn't get 10 jurors recommending death, then it was a life sentence. My guess is that that's what the governor would actually advocate to go back to what the legislature had previously set as the limit. The verdict of life in prison for the person responsible for a mass shooting, while unpopular with many, is not without precedent. In 2015, a jury in Colorado handed a similar sentence to the person who killed 12 people and injured dozens more in a shooting at a movie theater in Aurora. Robert Dunham, the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, says in both cases, mental illness was raised as a mitigating factor. In these really, really horrific murders, you are going to see very significant mitigating evidence. And it is an indication that the system did what it is supposed to do. Currently, there's just one state, Alabama, where the vote of a majority of jurors is all that's required for a death sentence. In the federal system and every other state where jurors determine the sentence, a unanimous verdict is required. Abandoning the requirement for a unanimous jury verdict for capital punishment would once again make Florida an outlier, and according to Dunham, make it more likely innocent people will receive the death penalty. Florida has had more people on death row exonerated than any other state, and the reason he maintains is that for decades it didn't require jury unanimity. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the rise in anti-Semitism in the U.S. and around the world. In our weather forecast, a few scattered showers left this morning, otherwise mostly cloudy today, with highs in the upper 60s. Tonight, a few clouds, lows around 50 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the mid-60s. 58 degrees right now in Boston. In business news, Boston-based Notarize is cutting its workforce for the second time this year. The company is laying off 60 people, including positions, in Massachusetts. The Boston Business Journal reports that the company let go about 110 people, 25% of its workforce, back in June. Waltham-based Thermo Fisher Scientific plans to buy the British diagnostics firm Binding Site. The cash deal is valued at more than $2.5 billion. Thermo Fisher says the acquisition will allow it to expand its portfolio of cancer-related diagnostic technology. The state is giving Springfield Technical Community College a nearly $1.5 million grant to open Open a new cybersecurity center. The center is set to open at Union Station in 2024. The college says the center will use the latest technology to teach students how to identify and stop cybersecurity threats. It's 8:44. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. People who spread anti-Semitism have had a busy few weeks. A string of remarks by the rapper Ye is only part of the story. Human Rights Watch is documenting rising numbers of anti-Semitic incidents in Europe and elsewhere. So let's talk this through with Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, who is the U.S. Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Anti-Semitism. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Steve. Okay, let's talk about monitoring it. What's going wrong? What's going wrong? Well, we're seeing a rise, as you just said, in anti-Semitism. We're seeing it internationally. We're seeing it nationally. What we're seeing also is it's not that it wasn't there before. Anti-Semitism is the longest or the oldest hatred, as historians sometimes say. Uh, But we're seeing a normalization of it, that it becomes okay to say certain things. Uh, And whether it's, I don't want to focus on one rapper because the problem is much bigger than that, as you just acknowledged. Um, But it becomes okay. I just heard a story of a kid in Montclair, New Jersey, who walked into the playground or the schoolyard and her friends, one of her friends gave or the other kids gave the the Nazi salute, you know, or throw pennies on the ground because Jews are cheap and want to get every penny or say all sorts of things. So it's both physical dangers. We just commemorated the anniversary of the Tree of Life synagogue where people were murdered just for going to synagogue. Yeah. Um, it's also little kids learning that being Jewish is something to be, instead of it being a source of joy, it's something that can bring you bodily harm. 
Can I just mention uh, your your job? Your brief, of course, is the world, is the rest of the world. Right. Um, but you you're, you're you're clearly thinking about incidents in the United States, which get attention around the world. Are we? Uh, unfortunately, as a country leading the way on this at the moment? I don't know if we're leading the way, but we certainly are getting a lot of attention. But when I go abroad, uh, I give a message that I got directly from my boss, Secretary of State Blinken, that I don't go around the world saying, we've got it solved and I'm wagging my finger in your face. I go and say, we don't have it solved. We're worried about it in our country. We're worried about it in your country. Um, this, this job, this position has existed now through four, I think three or four administrations. I've had wonderful predecessors. Um, but we're seeing something now that we haven't seen before, the, the confluence of domestic and international. Uh, it's, it's partially, it's the rise of populism. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're a danger to me. You must be stopped. The rise of sectarianism, supremacy, militiaism, uh, the rise of nationalism, segments of the population feeling that they are losing out. And of course, anti-Semitism has always been a conspiracy theory. It's, it's a prejudice like other prejudices, but it's one of its distinctive characteristics is that it says the Jews are out to get you, the Jews are out to run the world. Um, so you look, either you start out as an anti-Semite and you know the Jews must have spread COVID, or you start as a conspiracy theorist and you look for someone who is powerful enough, connected enough, uh, evil enough to do this, and you end up with the Jews. Do you feel yeah. that you know the way to properly combat these conspiracy theories, which are so widespread? And as you point out, it's just such a small step for some people from saying someone is out to get me to saying it's a Jew who's out to get me. Yes. Um, I don't have the easy answer, Steve. If I had the easy answer, I would have put it up on the website uh, when I, day I came into office and, sit, and, and, and spend my time enjoying Washington. Um, but I, but I <laughs> do know what... You could have put it on Twitter. You, people would, no, go on, go on. Right. Um, but I do know that, first of all, we have to get people to take this seriously. There's been a failure to take anti-Semitism seriously. You know, they look at Jews, oh, come on, Jews can pass, unlike people of color who do, who don't have a choice, Jews can pass. Uh, they look at Jews and they say, oh, they're well set, they're, they're in good shape, what do they have to worry about? Um, and people just don't take it seriously. Jews don't present as many other victims of uh, prejudice. I know Jewish parents who are now having the, with their children the equivalent of what black parents have had for decades, mm. the conversation. Um, it's a danger. I understand exactly what you mean. Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Steve. She is the United States Special Envoy to Monitor and Combat Antisemitism. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us at noon today for Here and Now. And Deepa Fernandez joins us to tell us what's coming up on today's program. Good morning. Good morning, and we have a lot on today's show. We're going to get the latest updates out of the uh, courtroom from the Supreme Court hearings yesterday on affirmative action. I know many people are interested in that. There are big elections happening today in Israel, and they matter a lot, even though it's another election for the Israeli people. We are going to tell you why. We're going to talk with Daniel Estrin there. And really special we have a conversation that robin has had with julie andrews the julie andrews hey, julie it's andrews. about the his 
the Julie Andrews. It's about the history of music and do re mi. So it's going to be beautiful listening. Um, of course, we have all the news coming up and your favorite celebrity memoir might have been ghost written. Tune in to hear about the people who write celebrity memoirs. All right, Deepa, thanks so much. Thank you. That's here and now, noon today, here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts. Catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. The Mississippi River is low this year, so low that salt water is creeping in from the Gulf of Mexico. As the flows in the Mississippi River drop, the Gulf of Mexico essentially comes upstream. It loses its ability to keep salt water at bay. I'm Elsa Chang. The effort to save the river's fresh water, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. In our weather forecast, cloudy skies today, temperatures in the 60s, a few clouds tonight with lows near 50 degrees, sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the mid-60s, and that's our forecast pretty much right through Sunday with temperatures up around 70 degrees this weekend. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston. Who loses if there are fewer publishers of books? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, HR and workforce management solutions designed to turn a business from a workplace into a work of art. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Avalara. Business owners have worries. Automating sales tax with Avalara helps get rid of them. Learn how Avalara can help take the worry out of tax compliance at avalara.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, we have one of those mornings where the rules of journalism collide with the practices of financial markets. Reporters are supposed to confirm things before going with the story. Well, stocks in China today shot through the roof amid unconfirmed social media chatter that China might, who knows, may be preparing to scale back its strict anti-COVID policy. The Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong rose 5.2 percent today. The key index in Shanghai went up 3.6 percent. There is an old saw among market professionals. Buy on the rumor, sell on the news. Here, quarterly results from companies that are thriving amid inflation are cheering investors in U.S. stocks. NASDAQ futures are up 1.4 percent. S&P futures up 1.1 percent. The guardians of interest rates at the Federal Reserve begin a two-day meeting today with their big decision due midday tomorrow. Expect a big jump in interest rates, three-quarters of one percentage point. The 10-year interest rate now is below five, no, below 4 percent, 3.94. A federal judge in New York has sided with the Biden administration and blocked the $2 billion marriage of the publishers Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. In a trial over the summer, the federal government argued that allowing two of the nation's five biggest book publishers to merge would create such a giant that it would reduce competition for authors and shrink the size of the advances they're paid. The government also argued the number of book releases would decrease. The presiding judge in the case agreed, issuing a permanent injunction against the merger. Penguin Random House said it would appeal the judge's decision. The publishing world has been watching this case closely, including some of the biggest names in the industry. Author Stephen King, whose books are published by Simon & Schuster, was a government witness and testified during the trial that he's seen the New York publishing world dwindle from dozens of companies to just a handful. 
The trial was at times uncomfortable for the book publishing industry, revealing dirty laundry, such as that most books are unprofitable and that company executives have missed opportunities to acquire what turned out to be best-selling works. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. And by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing continuity for clients. More at BairdDifference.com. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. Our most recent documentary we watched for our Econ Extra Credit project is called All Things Must Pass, The Rise and Fall of Tower Records, about a place that became a second home to many a music lover until the retailer collapsed under a mountain of debt, closing its last store in the U.S. in 2006. Yet... There's news, a newly reconstituted tower, this one called Tower Labs, will open its first brick-and-mortar location in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn this Friday. And did you know Tower Records has been thriving all along in Japan? Nori Shiota is a music producer and owner of the independent label Steel Pan Records in Japan, who says more than streaming, his customers still like buying music on a plastic disc in those little jewel cases. Someone who have a like, record label like me, Independent label could survive well because we still sell the CD too. Tower Records in Japan still has more than 80 locations. If it couldn't make it here, why there? Tower Records Japan told us it's about keeping up with trends and following the vision of Tower's founder in California, the late Russ Solomon. But for more, we turn to Patrick St. Michel, a writer based in Tokyo. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Now, in Japan... Tower is owned by a gargantuan corporation now, NTT Docomo. That's the big telecom company over there. But besides that, you have a theory as to how this chain was able to keep at it over there? Yeah. Besides having that backing by a massive telecom company, it helps that the Japanese entertainment industry, especially the music arm of it, has been quite slow to embrace technological and delivery changes in how people consume entertainment. With music in particular, a lot of big companies and labels have always been really hesitant to embrace the internet or streaming. And as a result, physical media, especially CDs, have been the dominant mode of how people listen to music in the country all the way until recently. And, you know, CDs, not cheap in Japan, right? You got to, I don't know, how, what are they, about 30 bucks? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's about, and this is before, like, inflation and the yen collapsed in on itself. A lot of artists, owing to the industry's reliance on CDs, actually also release multiple versions, including deluxe editions that can go as high as, like, $50 USD, or, like, I've seen, like, $100 sometimes for really special offerings. And we need to understand that going into some of the tower locations in Japan is not like stopping over at the hardware store. It's still a venue, really. Definitely. Most of the tower records in the country, especially the bigger ones in Tokyo, for example, they are offering you a total music experience. 
So for example, if you go to the flagship store in Shibuya, there's a live space in the basement. And if you go up one of the nine stories, you know, there's like a cafe that changes its theme regularly, usually to reflect a different artist or TV show or anime. It really sort of presents music as this all-encompassing experience, you know. And of course, they want you to leave with a CD or, in recent years, a record. But they also want to highlight so much more. Speaking from Tokyo, Patrick St. Michel is an American who's got a strong career going as a freelance writer based in Tokyo. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Our producers are Meredith Gerritsen-Morby, Ariana Rosas, Stephen Ryan, Alex Schroeder, Erica Soderstrom, and Jarrett Dang. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, the showers this morning will give way to mostly cloudy skies. This afternoon, temperatures getting into the upper 60s today. Tonight should be partly cloudy, lows around 50 degrees. Sunshine tomorrow with highs in the mid-60s, and that's our forecast for Thursday and Friday as well. It is 58 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Decades ago, the Supreme Court set a precedent for affirmative action. In the context of higher education, student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the narrowly tailored use of race in admissions. Now that precedent hangs in the balance. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.